happy. This was my uh, devotional psalm this morning, and I was reading it, and then we'll go to the Lord in prayer. And we're going to pray for a little baby that was born three and a half pounds. Can you imagine? Really underdeveloped and had a number of heart issues, and they've survived a heart surgery at three and a half pounds, and we're going to keep praying. It's not from our church family, but they're Christians, and the little boy's name is Isaac, so we're going to pray for him tonight. Let's read from Psalm 63. Just a few verses here. I'll read it. You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I like that. He says, I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. Now, remember, this is written in a desert climate. Could you imagine now, in a desert, and all you can think about is water, you're so thirsty. Can you imagine that? And what David is saying here, he says, my longing for you is more intense than my human thirst. Does that give you a little sense of that intensity that he had towards God? Then he says, I've seen you in the sanctuary. I've beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live. And in your name, I will lift up my hands. You know, I was just... Uh, listening to a lecture, and you know, the ancient Christians, when they prayed, and most of the Jewish people prayed, you know, there's actually tombstones of people with their hands upraised. That's the way Jewish men actually pray, with their hands uplifted. Isn't that amazing? They're lifting up their hands to the name of God. It's kind of a picture of our absolute surrender to God and openness to receive from Almighty God. So I'm going to have a stand tonight, and we're going to lift our hands before Almighty God. We're going to pray for this little baby named Isaac. And I'm going to pray for you tonight that God is going to do a powerful work in your heart, okay? So, Lord, we thank you tonight for the miracle of birth. We thank you for Isaac. We thank you he's already survived to this point. And I pray, Lord, that you will raise him up. You will completely heal him. And that, Lord, he will grow up with a deep sense of divine purpose in his life. And may he bring laughter, that's what his name means, into people's lives. May he bring joy. May he bring hope, oh God because of the grace that you're showing in his body even at this time. Father, I pray tonight you'd open our hearts. Lord, that we would have ears to hear what your voice, what your spirit, what you are trying to communicate into our lives, Lord. Help us, Lord, not to be hard-hearted. Help us not to be indifferent. Help us not to think, oh, I already know this stuff. But Lord, may you open up our spirit and you've got something special to speak to each of our hearts tonight. And I believe that you're going to bring out transformational living out of our lives, Father. That's the spirit of revival that you want to bring into every human heart. I pray, Jesus, open us up and deepen us and and just illuminate our hearts and minds tonight. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to continue... uh, sharing from the Gospel of Matthew. I just love this sermon that Jesus preached, the Sermon on the Mount. We've looked through what we call the Beatitudes, the first 12 verses, but I'm going to continue the journey because I think that as we listen to Jesus, he's a wisdom teacher. We're going to learn so much about how to live this life in a most effective manner. Stories told of a university professor, probably a theological um, seminary professor, and he was invited to speak at a military base. And so, you know, as they're 
they send a driver to pick him up at the airport. Guy's name is Ralph. And so, you know, he's walking through the concourse at the airport with Ralph. And every time he turns away, Ralph is gone. I mean, first of all, he looks over and there goes Ralph. He's running because he sees a lady, her suitcase burst open. And he's over there. He's trying to help this lady with her suitcase. And he helps her get on her way. And he's got a big smile on his face. He comes back, you know, to his guests. And then immediately... Ralph is gone again. He's going, what's with this guy? You know, Ralph is, you know, sees these two toddlers and they're trying to, because it's the month of December and they're trying to see Santa Claus. So he runs over there and lifts up these two little guys so that they can see Santa Claus, you know, then he puts them back down. He comes back, he has a big smile on his face. You know, no sooner as Ralph come back, then boom, he's gone again. And he's actually helping somebody else over there because they're totally confused and lost, don't know where to go. And he's explaining how to get around in the airport. And finally, this guy comes back. He says, Ralph, he says, where did you learn to live like this? And he said, I guess it was during the war. You see, Ralph had been stationed in Vietnam and his unit was part of the group that went about, you know, detonating or trying to find the safety spots in the minefields. And because he had seen some of his friends be killed right in front of his eyes, you can imagine how dangerous this is, trying to, you know, find a safe place for people to walk. He says, I learned to live between the steps. In other words, I never knew from one moment to the next if I was going to live or if I was going to die. And so he said, I, every time I picked my foot up and put it back down again, I took this step with an idea, this is a whole new world for me, a whole new lifetime. And I've chosen to live that way ever since. You know, the abundance of our lives is not determined about how long we live life, but how well we live it. Isn't that the truth? You know, it's not so much how long people live. You know, I was thinking of Jim Elliott. You know, he died, I think, and he was in his early 30s. You know, he was a missionary to uh, the Aka Indians in South America. But he lived his life to the fullest, and he died as a young man. But he, he said, if I only had, you know, one life to live, I'm going to totally live it for God. And because of his sacrifice, other people came and brought the gospel to these people. And literally thousands of people began to feel called to go to the mission field because of one man's life, living it to the fullest. So there are a number of things, I think, that determine, you know, the essence of our lives. And, you know, I think one of the things that really determines our lives is our past experiences. How many know our past really shapes our lives? Isn't that true? And a lot of times we allow what happened to us in the past to define who we are. And then we start living, letting the past, you know, determine what our future is going to be. But I want to declare to you the good news today. Your past no longer needs to define you. When you and I give our lives to Jesus Christ, the Bible says we become a new creation. All things pass away. All things become new. We actually get a new start on life. We were watching uh, some Alpha presentations this past week, and we had an Alpha retreat. And it was an amazing quote. This one man, his name was Alden, H.L. Alden. He said this, you know, most of us wish we had two lives to live. In the first life, we'd get, we'd do all of our mistakes so that in the second life, we wouldn't have to do them again. Isn't that kind of a deep desire, you know, to never have to make a mistake? But the reality is we do make mistakes. The reality is we have faltered. We have failed. But the good news is God can give us a brand new start. And even as Christians, sometimes we falter. Sometimes we fail. But God wants us to get up and move forward with a whole new sense of what He wants to do in our lives. So really, what's at the very core of our personality comes down to our response to God. That can be the defining thing that shapes what our life is going to be like. 
You know, in the past number of weeks, we've been studying the Sermon on the Mount, actually the first few verses called the Beatitudes. And in that introduction, Jesus is describing the characteristics of a follower of Jesus Christ, someone who's had an encounter with the living God and whose life has been radically changed from the inside out. Now, as we begin these next verses, we're going to discover how these characteristics are to be actually lived out. How does my transformed life begin to impact the lives of people around me? And so Jesus points out in verses uh, 10 to 12 that our society actually has an inbred hostility to righteousness. And I talked about that last week. That's why persecution comes to believers. Because, you know, people are rejecting the good things of God. You know, there's a, and we'll talk about it a little later, there's a preference for what is evil. Our world is not noted for its moral purity. How many go, that's probably true. It's not noted for that. It's actually rather noted for its moral decadence and decay. And Jesus now is going to outline, you know, our responsibility as a believer in this actual world. You know, have you ever asked yourself the question, why am I here? You know, why am I, what's my purpose in this great equation called life? Why did God create me? You know, I think that's a great question, isn't it? Like, why did God make me? Why am I on this planet? What did he have in mind when he made my life? What is it that God is looking for me to do in this life? And for those of you who are wondering why you're on this planet at this particular moment, in this particular place, at this particular time, I'm going to tell you that Jesus kind of spells it out for us here in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 and 16. Isn't that a great four verses that are going to really unpack for us why God and what's the purpose God has in mind for you and for me at this moment in our lives. And he uses two significant metaphors, two figures of speeches that you know, uses as an analogy to describe our purpose. And these two metaphors, the first one uh, is simply that we're going to be called salt. And secondly, we're light, salt and light. First, salt. Why salt? Because we're to be a preserving influence on a morally decaying society. That's the nature of what salt does. We're to help this world from actually destroying itself. The reason why our world is not worse is because we're here. You say, well, it's pretty bad, Pastor. Well, it could be a lot worse. You see, you and I are doing something in our culture. Jesus describes believers as salt, a mineral that is a key element in the ability to preserve that which is decaying. Do you realize that what I mean by nature is the moral and spiritual condition of, of mankind? People today are, and it's always been this way, they're in a state of rebellion against God. You know, the Bible says all we like sheep have gone astray. We've all gone our own way. That's a state of rebellion against God. The majority of people in this community are in a state of rebellion against God. They wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to convince them of that. They wouldn't say it that way. But they'll all say, well, I don't believe in God. I'm going to do my own thing. That's all a state of rebellion against Almighty God. And it creates moral decay in people's lives. So Jesus says this about us in verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. But let me just stop and talk about salt for a minute. He describes our purpose as we're salt. Now, Pliny, who is a Roman historian and naturalist, says, without salt, human life cannot be sustained. 
Now, most of us, we, we, we don't even think about salt. Matter of fact, some of you are trying to avoid it, okay? But can I explain to you why salt is such an important mineral? And I actually talked, you know, I, I, I had to ask some friends. I went and talked to some doctors. I said, why is salt essential to life? Why is this the most important mineral in our body? And this is what they explained to me. You see, if you don't have salt in your body, your human cells will begin to deteriorate. It's what the salt keeps your body fluid in your, it keeps fluid in your body. And if you don't have salt, you start, your cells will start shrinking and you will start dehydrating. We all know about dehydration. But what happens when you dehydrate, it causes your blood to thicken. And so your heart muscle now is having a difficult time processing the blood in your body. And so immediately your blood pressure starts dropping. You start getting weaker and faint. And finally, if you don't get salt in your system, you will actually start losing consciousness. And because of this, doctors feel that salt is the most important mineral in the body. Without salt, life cannot be sustained. So we all need this mineral in our body. I know sometimes we have probably too much salt, but you know that's, that's another problem. But if you don't have salt in your system, you're going to be in trouble. You're, you're going to actually, you know, eventually not survive. And so it's an important mineral. Do you realize that our culture is deteriorating? Anybody want to dispute that with me? You don't want to dispute that. It's, it's happening. You're watching it. You're seeing this moral decay happening in our culture. And you're seeing what's happening. And the only thing that's preserving this culture from decaying is you. You and me. We are the minerals in this culture that's sustaining the life of this culture. You know, a lot of Christians walk around, well, I'm not important. I go, you're absolutely essential. If you're not here, this culture would, if all the Christians were taken out of the city of Red Deer, this city would become so corrupt, so fast, it would just rot. And you say, well, I, I don't know if I believe that, Pastor. Well, let me give you an example, Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah became so vile that the Bible says that God says, I have to do something and put an end to this corruption. It was just self-destroying itself. And finally, you know, Abraham said to God, if there's just 10 righteous people, don't destroy the city. God says, I wouldn't destroy it for 10 righteous people. God could only find three righteous people. And God was so gracious that he actually rescued the three righteous people, took them out of the city, and then destroyed the city. That's what happens when you have a community that doesn't have salt in it. You and I are the salt that's preserving this community from destruction. I like Peter Marshall. He's an older minister. He's passed away a long time ago. They made a movie about him. Peter Marshall was a Scottish immigrant to the United States, became a very famous speaker, and eventually became the U.S. Senate chaplain. So he became well-known. And he loved to tell the story of the Keeper of the Springs. The Keeper of the Springs is a story of an old, aged man who was living up in the Alps. And so there was a little Austrian village that employed him to actually work in the tributaries from the mountains to make sure that the leaves and the debris and the silt would not get into the water stream so that they would have clean, pure water. 
And so he just did his job quietly, and the end result was a beautiful village down below. Became famous, tourists began to go there. You know, life was really great. And you know, how many know that after a while, people forget the good that people are doing? Isn't that kind of the truth? And so, a number of years go by, maybe 10, 20, 30 years, and finally the town council got together one day, and the treasurer, you know, pointed out, you know, we're employing this guy way up in the mountains, and you know, I don't even know what he's doing, you know? Who knows what he's doing? We may be paying him for nothing. And so they made a unanimous decision to have him be dismissed from his position. But you know what? It took a while, but eventually, you know, the leaves fell, the twigs fell in, the silt fell down, and pretty soon the river started changing its color, and pretty soon it became a little more slimy, you know, pretty soon there was an odor, the tourists, you know, began to leave, sickness entered the village, and pretty soon the town council called an emergency meeting, because, you know, they did not realize the value of the keeper of the springs. Now, I know it's a fictitious story, but what we need to realize, that's what happens when you and I, as believers, are doing our job in our society. You know, when we are showing goodness and grace in a culture, you know, believers showing compassion, forgiveness, unselfish service, you know, it actually impacts people who are self-seeking, rude, and indifferent. And that's the kind of Christ-like influence that impacts communities. And that's what we mean to our world. Jesus is speaking here not only of our great purpose, but of our great value. Do you know that the word salary actually comes from the word salt. The Roman soldiers, when they were being paid, they didn't just get money. They also got salt. That was part of their salary. And that's where we get the word salary from. How many realize that's an important ingredient? They knew they couldn't sustain life apart from having salt as a part of their lives. Yet Jesus is not only speaking to purpose and value, but in this text, he's also getting, giving us a warning. Look at what it says here. If salt loses its properties, if it, you know, it doesn't, it loses its saltiness, it loses its value. Now, Craig Bloomberg says, one must avoid assuming that all possible uses of salt were in view here. We may think of salt primarily as a spice-giving flavor. That's usually how we use it. But given the amount of salt needed to preserve meat without refrigeration, it is not likely that many ancient Jews considered pri- uh, salt primarily as an enhancing taste. See, you have to remember something. We're, we, if you're younger, you grew up in an age where you had refrigeration. I remember my grandparents, they had a box and they put ice in it. You know, There was a day when people did not have refrigeration. So how did they preserve food that would decay, and especially meat? Well, they actually used salt as a preservative to keep the bacteria from destroying and causing sickness. He goes on to say, loses its saltiness could best be understood as being defiled. And what he means by that is that this is not scientifically impossible notion of salt becoming flavorless, but rather the common problem in the ancient world of salt being mixed with various impure substances and therefore becoming worthless as a preservative. As a matter of fact, F.T. France, another writer, says, pure salt cannot lose its salinity. In other words, Salt itself doesn't lose its qualities as salt. But impure salt, you have to understand where were they getting it? They were going down to the Dead Sea. It's a very salty part of the world. I mean, that's the saltiest body of water in the world. You can actually go in there and you don't even, you can't drown because you float. You know, it's, it's like 
it's, it's amazing. It's so salty. The mineralization. So they would gather this minerals from the Dead Sea, but a lot of times, you know, there would be impurities mixed in with it. And after a while, if you have too many impurities, it loses its preservative quality. And that's what he's talking about here. So Jesus is not teaching us a chemistry lesson, but he's using a proverbial image. And the rabbis use salt as an image for wisdom. As a matter of fact, he talks about that our conversation need to be seasoned with salt. And what that really is talking about is that it's speaking of if when we, when we lose saltiness, we've lost wisdom. Now, I, I, I know that, you know, I've just been so intrigued with this wisdom literature of late. You know, I've been in the book of Proverbs. I'm studying wisdom literature. And basically, the Bible teaches there's two ways to live. You're either walking in wisdom or you're walking in folly. Now, folly doesn't mean you're being stupid. It just means you're, you're not doing what God wants you to do. That's, that's exactly what's happened. You're choosing your way over God's way. You know, people who are wise in the Bible have the fear of God in their hearts. They're doing what God's asking them to do. And so what he's basically saying here is people are not doing what God's asking them to do. And so a lot of times as the church, one of the great tensions in the church is how can I communicate the gospel to a world without accommodating its values? How many, we, we want to be, we're in the world, but we're not of the world. We're trying to communicate and relate and connect to people, and yet we can't just totally accommodate and live exactly like them. You follow what I'm saying? There's a real tension that goes on. And sometimes the church, in order to relate to culture, sometimes becomes too much like culture. They begin to accommodate. And that's what Jesus is warning against here, that you and I don't become so accommodating, we lose out and we don't have any saltiness. We don't have any wisdom. We don't have any value. We're not really distinctly different than what the culture is around us. We've, we've accommodated to the culture and we've lost our real power. In utilizing these two, uh, these, here, I'll, I'll say it this way, and I like how Craig Bloomberg says, he says, Christianity may make its peace with the world and avoid persecution, but in the process becomes impotent. It lacks power to fulfill its divinely ordained role. It will ultimately be rejected even by those whom it has sought compromise. You know, you know what's really sad? It's, it's sad to be a person who knows right from wrong, who says they're a Christian, and yet is living like the culture. That's really a sad state, and I'll tell you why. Because in reality, you're never really happy in either world. You're not, you know, if, you, if you want to be really happy, you just got to go totally for God. You know, if you're, if you're halfway between the world and God, you're a miserable person because you can't really enjoy what the world is offering because of what they're doing, they don't know any better. They're just groveling in their sin. But when you know what's wrong, it's hard to enjoy it. You see? Because deep down inside, you know it's the wrong thing to do. On the other side, you're not really going fully for God, and you know it. So you're actually in a miserable state. So I guess what, you know, what we're saying is it's losing its value. And Jesus is warning against that situation. By using these two metaphors, salt and light, Jesus is also utilizing a contrast. You see, salt by nature is hidden. It generally works in secret. It also works very slowly. Salt, by its very nature, affects change in whatever it's added to. It does always impact people's lives. See, if I'm living the Christian life and I, God puts me in a place, over time, I'm going to influence people's lives. You know that's true? I remember when I was first a Christian. I remember we had a Christmas party, and... Um, 
you know, I, you know, everyone said, yeah, you got to go to the Christmas party. But I knew these guys were just going to carry on and drink and get drunk, and it would just be a rowdy mess. So I said, okay, I'll finally went. But I, I didn't drink. I didn't do any of that stuff. So I started talking about my faith. And eventually, there was two rooms. There was the room I was in, and everybody in my room was actually talking about the things of God. And everybody in the other room was getting, you know, bombed out of their head. You know, it was just like the contrast was so great. And one of the young guys who was also a cook on staff at the restaurant with me, he said, I was so glad you were there that night because he said, if I had not, if you hadn't have been there, I'd have been in the other room getting wasted. But because you were there, I was in the right room and we were talking about the right stuff. You see, that's what salt does. It affects people around you. You see, when you and I have a standard, when you and I live the standard, we're helping people move towards the right standard. Okay, so the idea of light here is actually um, an explanation of the Christian life. Whether, whether we like it or not, our life should always be the first thing to speak. And if our lips speak more than our lives, it really doesn't have a very great impact in people's lives. Isn't that true? You know, I think about it like music. How many know our lives are like the melody and our message are like the words? How many know if you have a beautiful melody, people want to listen? And then when you have a beautiful lyrics, people will listen to the message. But you know, when you and I as Christians, we're living a messed up life, and then we start talking about Jesus, it's this weird noise coming out of us, and then they're going, well, that's a nice nice message, but it, it's clashing. And so you and I need to be congruent. There needs to be a unity where we're living the life, and then we're speaking the life, and it needs to go together. Let me move on to the second metaphor here, and that's the illuminating influence upon a people groping in moral darkness, because that's where people are. You know, I love what Paul says in Philippians. He says, holding out the word of God like stars shining in the night. Do you know that actually in the ancient world, when they were navigating over the seas, how do you think they knew where they were going? Because they look up into the heavens and they would see the stars. And then they would navigate by the stars. Isn't that a beautiful picture that you and I are like the stars? We're the light in a dark world. And people can begin to navigate their life based on our lives. Because you see, they don't know God and they don't know the Word of God. They don't even know right from wrong anymore. And when they see you and I living out this life, we're like these beautiful stars illuminating somewhat the path towards God. And that's what God has called us to do. Listen to what Jesus says. Not only are we salt, he says, you're the light of the world. Jesus is the great light. He says, I'm the light of the world. But he goes, you're the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Isn't that true? You can see it from a distance. As a matter of fact, I can remember when I drive to Red Deer at night, some of you have come up Highway 2. How many of you know, you're getting tired and it's late at night and you're looking forward to getting home and then you can see the glow and the lights of Red Deer and you go, okay, I'm getting close to home now. Isn't that beautiful? See, light is something that attracts us. We can actually see where we're at. He says, neither do people put a lamp and put it under a bowl. How many here, when you turn on the light, a little lamp, you just go, oh yeah, I'm going to put it under the bed. Is that where you put your lights? You go, oh, no, of course not. You, you, that's ridiculous. You'd light the light and you put it on a stand. Why? Because you want to see. That's why you're putting a light up. And so Jesus says, we want everyone in the house to see. He goes, the idea here is taken from the Old Testament where the Bible, the Word of God, is what? It's a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. I, you know, think about this. 
I think a lot of Christians have really funky ideas about God's guidance and about how God directs our steps. You know, there's, there's people, they use what I call the hunt and peck method. You know, what should I do tomorrow? They open their Bible, put their finger down, they read the text of Scripture. You know, you know God's going to give me guidance. That's like reading the horoscopes, folks. That's, that's crazy. God, God's not going to direct that way. And by the way, if you're trying to follow that you know, direction from horoscopes, you're actually letting people tell you what the stars are saying. You're actually worshiping the creation rather than the creator. This is what God wants you to understand. We need to go to the Word of God. And how we learn about God is through what He's revealed to us about Himself. The more I spend time studying Scripture, the more I begin to understand the ways of God and how God thinks, and how God operates, and what's right, and what's wrong. And so when I'm making decisions, God's giving me a freedom of thought. He's not going to have me, you know, be directed like a horse and a mule. You know how you, you ride a horse, you put a bit and bridle in its mouth, and then you start steering the horse by the bit and bridle. I think a lot of Christians, that's what they think God's going to do. They're going to, God's going to ride them, and he's just going to steer them, you know? He says, no, that's not how it works, folks. We're, we're directed by understanding the ways of God. We're understanding the Word of God. And so once I get to know the Word of God, I know the right way to live, and then I start living that way. And God gives me this freedom of choice. Isn't that amazing? And based on my understanding of who God is and His ways, I make choices. It's very powerful. So when people come up to me as a pastor, I'll just tell what it's like talking to me. When you tell me, well, God's telling me to do this, and it's contrary to God's Word, you know what I think in my mind? You're absolutely out of your mind. Why would God tell you to do something that's contrary to what He's already said? You're just deceiving yourself. You're just wanting to do your own thing. You're just making a justification for a sinful behavior. And I've had people do this to me, and I go, that's not God talking to you. Because God will never contradict what He's already said in the Word of God. You and I need to get into the Scriptures every single day and study them and read them and understand them so we can understand who God is and His ways and understand what He's like so we can be consistent with His character. God wants you to be like Him. Amen? You know, He wants you to think like Him. He wants you to look at life through His lens. He wants you to see things and evaluate things. As a matter of fact, He wants you to love the things He loves, and He wants you to hate the things He hates. Because the things He hates are always destructive to ourselves and to everybody around us. And that's important that we have that kind of light. Light not only reveals the hidden things of darkness, but it also explains the very cause of darkness or evil. Because darkness in the Bible is a metaphor for evil. And John says, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light. Why? Because their deeds are evil. He says, everyone who does evil hates the light. You know, how, how many you notice, I go, man, there's a lot of room in this place. Wouldn't it be awesome if everybody in Red Deer loved the light? You know what would happen? Churches would be packed. You would be so hungry. We would just have so many people who are going, I want to know more about God. I want to grow in my relationship to God. But you know what I notice? There's a lot of people in the bars in Red Deer because they love darkness. You know, why would I want to go there? What's there for me? Nothing. See, I want the light. You know, he doesn't want to come into the light. The person doesn't want to come into light. Why? Because he's afraid that what he's doing will be exposed. Whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be plainly, seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. 
Not only does light expose darkness, it shows and provides the way out of darkness. How many are happy when you're in the dark and you see a little light and you're moving towards the light? You know what I mean? And you're going, I'm going to take my time. I got to get past this place of darkness to get to where the light is so I can actually see where I'm going. How many know you can get hurt in the darkness? Anybody ever stub your toe in the darkness? Anybody ever trip over something? Anybody ever fall over something in the darkness going, man, I forgot I put that there. You know, ouch, does that ever hurt? You know? Isn't that true? Aren't you glad for the light? I am. You know, we're children of the light. You know, Jesus says, in the same way, let your light shine before others. So how do we let our light shine? How do we become those stars that are navigating people's lives? They see the good things we're doing. They see our lives. They see our behavior. And then they glorify God. You know, I love the story that Steve Sojin, he wrote a book called Conspiracy of Kindness. And their church decided to do evangelism by kindness. So they went out and they did a car wash and they didn't charge anybody. And it's really interesting. And while they were doing this, there was a fascinating story that was told later to them because, you know, there was a little boy and his name was Jared and he was playing with his dad, Joe. And, you know, they're playing catch. He's eight years old and he asks his dad the big question, Dad, is there a God? How many know that when you don't know God, you're not a Christian, you go, uh, I don't know. How is this? I don't know. Little boy, hold on, Dad. We're going to find out. He runs into the house, grabs a balloon, a pen, and a three by five index card, and he writes out this statement on his card. He says this Dear God, if you're real and you're there, send people who know you to Dad and me. Jared. He ties it up, sends the balloon up, and you can imagine Joe thinking, oh my goodness, this is scary. Like, what in the world's going to come out of this, right? Like, how many know as a dad, you're kind of a little, you know, like, I hope he's not disappointed by this experience, right? And then they go on playing catch. A couple days later, they end up at Steve's car wash, his church's car wash. And so they go in and they're washing the car, and the guy sa- and Joe says to the people, well, how much is this? Oh, no, no. We're just doing this to show. God's love to you. And the dad's going, huh? You know, like, really? He says, are you the kind of people who know who God is? And they go, yeah, we do. And so they begin to explain to Joe and Jared who the true and the living God is. How many think that's amazing? Two days later, after Jared sent the little balloon up, they end up at this place and they come to faith in Christ. Is that powerful or what? I love what John Wesley says, do all the good you can, by all the means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, to all the people you can, as long as you ever can. What is he saying? Just keep doing good. Just be doing good. You know, ever been accused? Man, you guys are just do-gooders. Thank you. I'll take that. That's a compliment. You know, how many ever people trying to put you down? You guys are just a bunch of do-gooders. They're going, yeah, that's right. That's our goal. We want to glorify our Father by the lives we live. Isn't that beautiful? You know, how many know John Wesley impacted the world? Absolutely. Certainly he did. But as we're examining the cultural landscape today, you know, a number of years ago, John Stott, who is a British Anglican pastor, was in North America. And they said, John, they said, you know, why is there so much moral filth and pollution in our nation. John Stott says, well, I don't know, I'm a visitor. No idea. He says, I can only speak from my experience about Great Britain, because that's where I'm from. He says, this is what I've observed in Great Britain. So I'm not speaking about North America. I have no knowledge of that. 
But he says, I know something about the growing dishonesty, corruption, immorality, violence, pornography, the diminishing respect for human life, the increase in abortion, and on and on he went. Just started listing things. He said, let me, let me, I can speak to that. And somebody said, whose fault is it? Let me put it like this. If the house is dark at night, there's no sense in blaming the house. How many say that's true? In other words, what's happened is the sun has gone down. The question we need to ask is, where's the light? You know? Then he says, if meat goes bad, there's no sense in blaming the meat. That's what happens when bacteria are allowed to breed unchecked. The question is, where's the salt? True? You know, if society is becoming corrupt like a dark night or a stinking fish, there's no sense in blaming society. That's what happens when fallen human society is left to itself and human evil is left unchecked and unrestrained. The question we have to ask ourselves, where's the church? You see, when I look at Red Deer today, it grieves my heart to see the growing evil in our city. How many say that's true, Pastor? Theft is arising. Crime is on the rampant rise, you know. You know what's restraining it? You and I. We're the restraint. You know, how many know salt does its best work when it's shaken out? You know, isn't that true? You see, you know what? God loves it when we gather together and worship His name. But then you know what? Do you notice that most of our time isn't spent in church? Where's it spent? It's spent out there. Our mission field, you don't have to go across an ocean to go to the mission field. Our mission field is right here. Our neighborhoods, our schools, our workplaces. And you know what God does? He shakes you and I out into those places. And we're sprinkled out all over our city. And as you and I are relating to people in our community, we're the salt. You know, we're the salt. Let me close with a story. A number of years ago, Andrea, my oldest daughter, was in high school. So this is a few years ago. And uh, they were going to, she was singing for the jazz choir at the high school, and they wanted to go to Carnegie Hall. I mean, that's a neat opportunity. Young people go to New York and sing in the prestigious Carnegie Hall. They were invited to sing at Carnegie Hall. That's a high honor, their, their choir. Yeah, it was amazing. So they called all the parents and said, hey, we have this amazing invitation to go to New York and sing at Carnegie Hall. And so they said, we're going to have to raise some money. This was going to cost for these kids to go. And the first thing, you know, we're meeting as parents. First thing out of their mouth is, how are we going to raise this money? First suggestion, well, we can go work for the casino as parents, you know, make the money. And I'm listening to all these guys, and that, that almost sounded like a done deal. And then I said, excuse me, I have a problem with this. I have two problems with it. Here's problem number one. And then I said, I'll have a solution. Problem number one with it is, do you guys realize that we're going to benefit at the expense of people's addictions? And I said, I know a lot of people, maybe they just go there for a little bit, but there's a lot of folks that are so addicted, they're spending all of their livelihood is causing distress in their family life. So you want to you benefit at the expense of others. I have a problem with that. So problem number two, I said, is the parents are going to do all the work and the kids are going to do absolutely nothing. I have a problem with that kind of a thinking. I think if young people are going to benefit at something, they need to participate in the raising of these funds. I think that's healthier for them as well. And so I'm going to make a suggestion. And I made a suggestion that these young people actually participated in the raising of money. I gave them a game plan how to go about doing it. I said, why don't we have a benefit concert? They're the singers. Why don't they go out and raise money, collect prizes? We'll do a silent auction. And, and then we'll, we'll hook it up so that to the degree that they're doing it, 
is they're going to benefit. We're going to set a system up where if nobody, if you do less, your parents are going to pay more. If the child is, does more, they're going to benefit more from the trip. You know what happened? I didn't tell them I was a pastor. I just told them this is a better way of doing it. They actually moved over. I convinced all of the parents to come my way. One person's voice. But you know what was really interesting? My daughter was, that was her last year of high school. For the next 10 years, you know how they raised money for their different events? Through a benefit concert and a silent auction. How many think that's amazing? See, folks, we need to be salt in our world. We need to stand up. We need to sometimes speak up. We need to be willing to be misunderstood. Come on. We need to be salt and light in our world. Let's stand. Thank you, Mark. You know, as we bow our heads tonight, we close the service. How many here, you know, it's just as you're thinking, I want to just take a moment of reflection. We're going to pray. How many say, you know, Pastor, I have really been challenged tonight. Jesus said, if salt loses, it kind of gets compromised. It's going to lose its influence. Folks, I want us to be salty. You know, some people say, you know, people aren't interested in the things of God. Listen to me now. They're not thirsting for God. I remember years ago, somebody said to me, you know, I know how to make a horse drink. How do you make a horse? You know, remember that saying, you can bring a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. I used to believe that. But then this one friend said to me, there's a way to change that. Let him have a little salt. It'll create thirst. You and I need to be salty. It'll help facilitate thirst in people's lives. How many here say, you know what? I want to be more salty than I've ever been before. I want to be a greater light than I've ever been before. I got my hands up. I want to have a greater impact, a greater influence. You know, I don't want our city to just keep hiring more police officers because we're trying to restrain evil. I want our church family to sprinkle out all across our city and have such a powerful influence in restraining the evil in our community because you and I are just living this vibrant, dynamic Christian life that's impacting the lives of people around us. Amen? And that they're coming out of their addictions because they're experiencing the love and the grace and the power of the living God. I believe Jesus can set people free from addiction. I believe Jesus has the power to deliver us from the bondages that we find ourselves in. Jesus is greater than human sin. He's greater than Satan. He's greater than the power of evil. And you and I can experience that as we allow His Spirit to rule and reign in our hearts. So Lord, we pray today, help us, so God. Forgive us where we have compromised our lives. Lord, I pray that we would become so salty and so bright. We would be like those bright stars in our community helping navigate people back to this refuge called Jesus the Savior. And we thank you for that, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you as you leave.